operation of thy perpetual providence, carry out the work of man's salvation, that things which were cast down may be raised up, and that all things may return into unity through him by whom all things were made, even thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, welcome back to this study of the book of James. If you have your Bibles, please open them to James chapter 4. We're going to look at the latter part of James chapter 4. We started this chapter last week, and we'll finish it out today and perhaps begin chapter 5. Now, one of the challenges of teaching the book of James is that it is such a practical book. We said this is one of the reasons, perhaps, why James is overlooked in the history of the church. We said that Martin Luther didn't like this book because he thought that it undercut the message of justification by grace through faith. But one of the other reasons why James is perhaps an unpopular book is because James is that one book that perhaps more than any other makes us uncomfortable. It's difficult to teach it because there's not much to expound. You know, when you're teaching an epistle like Paul's epistle to the Romans, where you have all of those deep and complex doctrines, uh, that takes a great deal of explanation, but it doesn't take much explanation when it comes to the book of James. This is pretty much a straightforward explanation of how we, as the followers of Jesus Christ, are expected to live. And oftentimes when we read these texts and discover that we're not living like this, we feel convicted in our hearts. And so this is a book that on one, in one sense is very easy to teach. All you really have to do is read the text itself and say to the people that are listening to you, well, just apply this to your life. But the difficult thing, of course, is to show us really how this can be applied on a day-to-day -day basis and how we oftentimes fall short of the mark. I think that's true when we come to the fourth chapter of James. One of the things that uh, he makes very clear here is that you and I are engaged in a struggle. It's a struggle. Now, the Christian life is a struggle. If anybody thinks that you become a Christian and everything is going to get easier for you, uh, they simply really do not understand what New Testament Christianity is all about. Jesus made it very clear to his disciples that theirs was going to be a life of hardship, difficulty, rejection, persecution. He said that the world hated me, the world is going to hate you. He said if the world had loved me, it would love you as well. And we all know exactly what the world did to Jesus. And he said you can expect that the same thing will probably happen to you as well. It's interesting to note that in this fourth chapter of James, he talks about the three forces that we struggle against. He mentions them. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are our three great opponents as Christians in life. We struggle against the world, we struggle against our flesh, and we struggle against the devil. And as I said, James mentions them all. He mentions the world, for example, in verse 4. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And we said that the word that is translated there as world doesn't necessarily mean the created order. It's the spirit, it's the attitude of the world. It's the values of the world that you and I struggle against as Christian people. You and I are called to walk out of step with the vagaries and fashions of the time and the culture. 
So we struggle against that because we are called to be in the world, and yet we are called not to be of the world. And the world is constantly trying to force us into its own pattern. So we struggle against the world and worldliness and the standards and the values of the culture. We also struggle against our own flesh, and he talks about that in verse 3. He says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There is a war within us. And we all know this. This is nothing new. The very things we want to do, we don't do. The very things we hate, these are the things we find ourselves doing. And so we find that there is this struggle within us. So we're battling against the culture out there. We're battling against this struggle within our own flesh to gratify its desires and its pleasures. And we are also battling against the devil. The New Testament takes the devil seriously. Some people might think that the devil is a rather archaic and infantile idea. But the Bible takes seriously the idea of personified evil. And he talks about the devil. In fact, he even suggests that the devil is ultimately behind all of this. It's like that scene out of The Wizard of Oz. Don't look at that man behind the curtain. Well, there is a sense in which James says the values, the standards of this world, and even the passions of our own flesh, the one who is behind the curtain, as it were, pulling the strings, is the devil himself. And that's why he says in verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So James is very clear, you and I are engaged in this struggle. And the first thing that is necessary in order for us to be victorious is to recognize that fact, to recognize what we're up against and who we're battling against. Those three forces are arrayed against us and they are formidable, but his point is that if we submit to God, he is greater than the world, he is greater than our own passions, our own flesh, and he is greater even than the devil. So that's what James is really talking about here in this fourth chapter. But he goes on to talk about practically how we see this at work, how we see this struggle playing itself out in our lives and in the world. And he says this in verse 13. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? In other words, James is saying, look, it's very easy for you to sit in judgment over your neighbor at his faults and the way that he falls short of the standard of God, when in reality you are dealing with precisely the same things. See, that just goes to show you how you are at war with yourself because there is a sense in which you are no better than your neighbor. Now, verses 11 and 12 of this chapter are easily misunderstood, especially in our culture today. That part where James says, do not judge. If we hear anything out there in the world, which we're battling against, that's one of the things that we hear. That's a constant mantra, isn't it? Do not judge. Do not judge another person. Who are you to judge? Judge not, lest ye be judged. 
That's perhaps the most famous passage in our culture today from the Bible. It used to be John 3.16. You used to go to a football game and you'd see somebody hanging down a banner that said John 3.16 and everybody knew what John 3.16 is. Nobody really knows what that is anymore today, but everybody knows judge not lest ye be judged. And so we read this passage and it's easy to misunderstand what James is actually saying here. It implies that we're not supposed to judge anyone or any behavior whatsoever, and if you do, you're going to get canceled. Because that's the culture in which we live, isn't it? If there is one unforgivable sin out there in society today, it is to stand in judgment of another person. But that's not actually what James is talking about here. Keep your finger there in James and turn back, if you will, to Matthew, where Jesus actually speaks those words, judge not, lest you be judged. I said to you in the sermon on Sunday that context is always key, and that is so important. If you take a passage out of the Bible out of its original context, you can make that passage say anything that you want it to say. You can manipulate it. And let's be honest with it. We see this happening on a daily basis every time you turn on the news. Whether you're watching CNN or whether you're watching Fox, chances are somebody's taking something out of context in order to make their point. It's a form of manipulation. And you see it happening with a passage like this. So Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says... Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, if you stop right there, it seems pretty straightforward. Don't judge another person, period. But then Jesus goes on to say this, very next verse, 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, what does verse 6 mean? Verse 6 means that we're supposed to judge. That is to say, we're supposed to be discerning. So when Jesus says, judge not, and yet he says, do not give to the dogs what is holy, do not throw your pearls before pigs, he's saying you need to recognize that there are some people that are going to be opposed to your message, don't waste your time, your energy, battling against that continuously. Do not throw your pearls before swine. Now, in order not to do that, you have to judge, don't you? So in the previous verses, Jesus says, don't judge. Then in the very next breath, he says, you need to judge. So which is it? Well, again, context is key here. What does Jesus say? Why do you say, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own? Jesus' concern with judging here is hypocritical judging. It's when we're standing in judgment of another person when we are, in fact, guilty of the very things we are condemning them for. 
So yes, you and I are called to judge. It's not to mean that we're not supposed to decide what is right, what is noble, what is lovely, what is beautiful, what is acceptable, what is holy. We're supposed to be able to judge and discern all of those things. But we are also expected, remember, James is a very practical book. We are expected to put those things into practice. Because faith without works is what? Dead. So when he says, do not judge, that's what he means. Do not be a hypocrite in terms of your discernment, in terms of your judgment. If you're going to say this is the right thing to do, you had better be doing the right thing in your own life. But you cannot say this is right for you, but I am not in any way under the same obligation. And so what you see when you turn back to James chapter 4 is that what he's really talking about there in verses 11 through 12, when he talks about our struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, what he's really talking about here is playing God in other people's lives. Playing God in other people's lives, telling them how to live, but feeling that we are under no obligation ourselves. It's interesting, that's the way James begins this chapter. He asks the question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Why is there so much wickedness, so much suffering in the world today? The answer we normally want to give is, well, it's out there. The reason why there's so much trouble is there's, there's something unholy or there's something corruptive in the world. But we said James doesn't let us off the hook. James said the reason why the world is corrupt is why? Because we're corrupt. The problem is not out there. The problem is in here. And that's why he says, how can you play God in another person's life, telling them that this is the way they should live when you are not living that way yourself? So that's what he's really concerned with here, is that kind of judgment on another person's life. Playing God, sitting on the throne for another. But he's not just concerned with playing God in another person's life, he's also concerned with playing God in your own life. And that's what he goes on to talk about in chapter 4, verse 13. This is a little more subtle, but it is also more prevalent. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. In other words, if you know the right thing to do and you're telling somebody else to do it and you don't do it, that's a sin. James's real concern here is something that we said that is as old as time. James is taking us back, we talked about this last week, a whole way back to the beginning of creation. Two things happened at the time of the fall, you may recall. One is that the man and the woman ate of the tree that they were told they were not to eat from. And then, 
having eaten of that tree, when God called them to account, what did they do? They blamed others. Now, why did they eat of the tree? Because they wanted to be like God. They, it was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They could eat of any tree in the garden, but if they ate of that tree, they would surely die. But the serpent comes along and says, ah, but if you eat of that tree, you will be like God. That is to say, you will be in charge. You'll be answerable to no one. That's exactly what James is talking about here in this chapter. He says, when you are judging another person, but not submitting yourselves to that same judgment, you're playing God. You're answerable to no one. He says, we do that in other people's lives, and of course, we do that supremely in our own lives. And I said, this book is so practical. He's not just talking in abstracts. He shows us on a day-to-day -day basis how we do that. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. Now, I want you to understand right off the bat, James is not condemning planning for the future. I'll be honest with you, I'm a planner. I'll be the first one to admit it. Every Tuesday, we have a staff meeting, and we go through the calendar, and the calendar goes at least a month out. So we plan. In fact, we have a planning day every spring as a staff here at St. Philip's, and we plan out all of the activities, all of the Bible studies, all of the classes, all of the worship services for the entire year. And we put those things on the calendar. So James is not condemning here planning for the future. It sounds like that. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade, make a profit, etc. It sounds like he's condemning planning ahead, but that's not what he's talking about at all. It's perfectly legitimate to plan. I would encourage you to plan for the future, to be responsible with the resources that are at your disposal. In fact, the Bible condemns people who do not plan and prepare for the future, who do not store up, who are not prepared. Let me give you an example of somebody who planned for the future, biblically, and was rewarded for it. Keep your finger there in James and go back to the book of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 41. It's a wonderful story. It's the story of Joseph the same Joseph who had that coat of many colors. Joseph, you may recall, had been imprisoned. It's a tragic story in some respects, but it's also a powerful story of God's providence and of how God was in control of his life even when things looked the bleakest. At any rate, Joseph was a man who was imprisoned, but God had granted him a gift, a gift to be able to interpret dreams. And Pharaoh, who was the king of Egypt, was being troubled by dreams, deeply troubled by them. Uh, uneasy lays the head that wears the crown. And Pharaoh kept having these recurring dreams, and he did not know what they meant. Let's just go ahead and read through it, because it's a wonderful description. 
Most of the time, we would probably chalk this up to something that he'd eaten the night before, but you know, he'd had Indian food or something like this that caused him to have these kind of dreams. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, cows coming up out of the river. And they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. Now, what kind of a dream is this? And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation, a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about, and I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Don't be a baker. <laughs> then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him in out of the pit, and when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that you can hear a dream and you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows, but when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had been eaten, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke, and I also saw in my dreams Seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. So, Joseph, what do you think? And Joseph probably said at first, you should stop smoking whatever it is that you're smoking. <laughs> now he goes on and he says this. The dreams of Pharaoh are one. Both dreams mean the same thing. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is, as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. 
The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. So what were they supposed to do? He goes on to say, And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years, and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh for the food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. What does Joseph say? God has given you insight into what is about to happen. There are going to be seven years of plenty, wonderful crops. Your barns are going to be full, but those are going to be followed by seven years of famine. Therefore, prepare for it. Get ready so that when the famine strikes, you will not be taken by surprise. Now, that is what you call planning. That's planning, and that's what you and I are expected to do. We are expected to be responsible with the resources that are at our disposal. So go back to James when James says, you make your plans saying today or tomorrow we will do this thing or that thing, we will go to that place or we will stay here for that part, we will make a profit, etc. He is not condemning planning. What James is condemning is the failure to take God into consideration when we make our planning. As if we're the sovereign. As if we can control events. If we can control our own lives. As if the resources at our disposal are just that, our resources and not the Lord's. That's what he is condemning. Acting as though we are what? God in other people's lives? And God in our own lives. And let's be honest, we do this on a regular basis. Whether we recognize it or not, we really do. It's not to say that we deny the existence of God, we just live our lives as though God is not part of the equation. Now, Jesus told a parable about this on one occasion. Turn, if you will, to Luke chapter 12. It's one of the great principles of biblical interpretation that Scripture interprets Scripture. So on this particular occasion, Jesus was teaching the crowds, and a man came up to him, just teaching the crowds, like I'm teaching you today. And all of a sudden, a man came up and interrupted the teaching. And he said, good teacher, I know you're in the middle of a lesson and that's all wonderful, but hey, listen, I, we, we got a problem in my family and we need you to sort it out. Sorry, folks, just, just hold on a second while the Lord sorts this out with us. My brother and I are divided over our inheritance. Now, we need you to give us some insight here. What should be done? Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus... Rather than addressing the man, addresses the crowd and tells a parable. He says, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, 
the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, I love that expression. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, this is one of those wonderful pictures that Jesus paints that is full of meaning. First thing I want you to notice in this parable is that Jesus says the land of a rich man produced plentifully. You notice he doesn't say there was this man who went out and worked himself to the point where he was ready to drop. There was this man who went out and plowed his field and he sowed the seed and he watered the seed and he cared for the seed. What does he say? He says the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Almost as if to imply that the land did it and the man did nothing. Now anybody that knows a farmer, and I've known some farmers over the years, know that they are among the hardest working people in the world. But what's Jesus' point? There's only so much that the farmer can do. Farmer can make all of his plans. Farmer can do all of the work that is necessary in order to get the crops into the field. But there are some things that are beyond the farmer's control. I've got some dear friends, they're tomato farmers down in Beaufort. And they have worked harder than anybody I've known. They're extraordinary people. But if a freeze comes, or if too much rain comes, those are things that they cannot control. That's Jesus' point. This was an agrarian culture in the first century. Locusts could have come and devoured the man's field. There was nothing that he could have done about that. A blight could have come upon his crops. There was nothing that he could have done about that. But yet, he is acting as though he's done it all himself, hasn't he? So the first thing that Jesus is making, the first point that he's making here, is that actually, God is as much responsible for this man's crop as anybody. Here's the second thing to note in this story. And the man says, once the crop comes in, not thanks be to God, but I have nowhere to store all my crops in abundance. Here's what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build larger ones. I'm going to have excess. I got the golden parachute. And I will store up my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, relax. You've got it easy now. You can enjoy life. Now, how many of us do that? We call this the good life. We're all working toward that day when we can what? Lay it all down. We can relax. We can eat. We can drink. We can be merry. We can live the good life. 
Here's the third thing to notice. But God said to the man, fool. This may be one of the few places where God ever calls somebody a fool. In fact, if you go back and read the Sermon on the Mount, we are condemned if we call somebody a fool, aren't we? Jesus goes so far as to say you're in danger of hellfire if you call another person a fool. But he calls this man a fool. And why was he a fool? Because he thought he was in control. He thought he could plan out his life. He thought he had done it all by himself, the old-fashioned way. He'd earned it. And what's more, he could now then control his life and his future. And there are some things, quite frankly, that are beyond our control, and that's the point that Jesus is making. That night, for all of his planning, all of his preparation, the Lord was going to demand his soul. That soul that he had been talking to, that soul that he said, take your leisure. And Jesus said, and so it will be for anyone who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The problem is not the planning. The problem is a failure to take God into consideration when we do our planning. It's this belief that we are somehow in charge of our own lives. That we can plan. And that we can make those plans come to pass without taking God into consideration. Many of you are probably taught as children that famous poem Invictus by William Ernst Henley. It has a number of stanzas in it. Just the first and last, I think, are the most significant. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. The last stanza is the damning one. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. How many of you were taught that? Not maybe the poem so much, it's just that's how you live your life. You're in charge of your life. You may be whatever you want to be. But Jesus is very clear. James is very clear. Anybody who thinks that is a fool. They're a fool. Because it simply isn't true. Now you may be thinking to yourself, well, I don't really think that way. I don't really operate that way. Let me show you practically how this plays out on a day-to-day -day basis. James does it very well. It's the way we set our own schedules. We set our own schedules, we make our own plans. We say, today or tomorrow, I will do this. We select our own path. James says, we will go to thus and such a town. I've got my own plans for my life, and here's how it's going to work out. We place our own limits. We say, I'll spend a year here, or I'll spend a year there, or I'll spend so many months doing this, that, or the other thing, and then. We arrange our own activities. We say, I'll go into that town, and I'll engage in business, I'll trade. And then we say this, I'll predict my own outcome, and I will make a profit. 
Be honest. How many of you, when you plan out your week, take into consideration God? As you plan out your life, your careers, how many of us actually stop and take into consideration what God would have us do? Or do we have our own plans and our own agendas, and from time to time, oh yes, God interrupts, but we'll get over that, <laughs> and we'll get on with our own plan for our own lives. That's what James is condemning here. Yeah, we're not supposed to play God in other people's lives, but he says you're not God in your own life either. That's the main reason why you can't play God in somebody else's life. You're not even the God of your own life. The most important thing to recognize is that you are not in charge. Now, many people will find that very confining to discover, lo and behold, I'm not in charge. Sometimes it doesn't happen until God strips everything away. All of a sudden you find your, your health is gone, and all of a sudden you discover, I'm no longer in charge. But actually, when you come to the realization that you're not in charge, that can actually be a very liberating thing. Because being in charge, I can tell you as the rector, being in charge, it's exhausting. And there's something liberating about recognizing that you are not in charge, but there is one who is in charge, and his plans are for your good, your ultimate good. James not only tells us how it is practically that we have a, this desire to go it alone, he also shows us the problem with going alone. First of all, he says, we think that we can plan. We think we can do our own thing. He said, but the problem with that is that none of us knows the future. Isn't that true? How many of you have ever been surprised? And when I, when I mean surprise, I'm talking about a big surprise. Something happens in your life that you were not expecting. COVID. Okay, well, there's one right there. Who was planning on that? Who was expecting that? You see this in marriage. I can't tell you how many young couples come in for premarital counseling. And I tell them, I, you know, our job is to prepare them. We're not here to make them jump through hoops, but we are trying to prepare them for what marriage is going to be. A wedding does not a marriage make, let me tell you something. I, I think to myself, if people put as much time, effort, and energy into the marriage as they put into the wedding, they'd be better off. But you know, according to the statistics right now, 50% of all marriages in America end in divorce. And that number is creeping up. And I hate to tell you this, it's no better amongst Christians than it is among people who are in the secular culture. And so our job when we do premarital counseling is just to give them the tools that are necessary in order to prepare them. But I always start off by saying, now, I want you to understand marriage is a struggle. It's a blessing. It's the most sanctifying relationship you will ever be in. But it is challenging. How many of you have ever been married for any length of time and you have not found marriage challenging? Anybody out there? It is a struggle, isn't it? It can be difficult. It can be a blessing, but it can be a struggle. It can be difficult. And so I always tell them, you know, 50% of all marriages are going to 
end in divorce. What that means is that if I'm counseling you here and Father Brian is at the opposite end of the hall and he's counseling somebody, I want you to know that according to the statistics, one or the other of you are going to end up in divorce. And you know what they always say? Well, it won't be us. It'll be Father Brian's couple. <laughs> Never going to be us. They're absolutely convinced. But you know, things interrupt in life. Things come, people change, circumstances. See, we think we know what the future is going to hold, but we don't. None of us knows. We have our plans, we have our dreams, we have our hopes. But God is the one who orders our steps. That's one reason why we should never play God. We need to take him into consideration because we do not know what the future holds. But, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, we do know who holds the future. So that's the first problem with this go-it-alone attitude. As mortals, we really don't know what the future will bring. Second thing is this, we have no idea how long we are going to live. Isn't that what verse 14 says? Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. This is one of the things that I try to impress upon young people who will say, yes, I know I need to get serious about religion. Yes, I know I need to get serious about God. And I intend to do so. But right now, it's just those words, right now, reminds me of what St. Augustine once said in his Confessions. If you want to read a great piece of literature, read St. Augustine's Confessions. Augustine was a young man, came from a wealthy family. He had all of the luxury that that would afford. He had all of the opportunities that that would afford. And he knew that he needed to get serious about God. And he knew that one of the things that he was doing was he was not living a chaste life. He was a playboy. He was a, he was a kind of a Hugh Hefner. And he wrote in his diary on one occasion, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. <laughs> but see, when Augustine wrote that, there was a sense in which he was a fool, wasn't he? Because he didn't know how long he would live. You and I make plans, but we don't know, do we? We do not know. We are but a mist, is the way James puts it. And it is true. How long will we be remembered after we are gone? Let's be honest. We don't want to be depressing about this. I mean, it's lunchtime and that sort of thing. But, but sooner or later, we're going to be a picture behind some frame or we're just going to be fading off. And somebody's going to say, who was she? Well, I don't know. I think she was somebody on your father's side. I don't know. Just put it back in the closet. We are but a mist. That's what James says. We are but a mist. And if we're serious about it, it's true. So who are we to play God and make our plans without taking God into consideration? Here's another problem with this go-it-alone policy. We ignore God's sovereignty over the affairs of our own life. We forget that God is sovereign over the affairs of men and nations. Now, if you're one of those people that likes to be in control, that's going to be a very depressing thought. If you're one of those people who's been brought to the realization that you're not in control, that should be a very encouraging thought. You're not in charge. 
God is sovereign. What is James concerned about here? James is concerned with what he talked about at the very beginning, having a faith that works, having a living faith, not a hypocritical faith, not a faith that professes a belief in God every Sunday, but lives as though God is no part of the equation or your life whatsoever. I want you to turn for just a moment to Romans chapter 1. Since Paul and James are often set against each other, I want to just turn to Romans chapter 1 for just a moment. We're going to start at Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Now, Paul is talking about the judgment of God that is coming upon humanity. Now, Romans is a wonderful book, and it's filled with very encouraging messages. But the beginning, Paul, like a good doctor, diagnoses the problem before he gives us the prescription. And here's the problem. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's interesting to note, Paul doesn't say the problem is that men and women are ignorant of the truth. He said the problem is that they suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. There it is. There is no excuse, Paul says, for people saying there is no God. Why? Because his signature is written across everything in creation. And that's why God's judgment is coming, he said, because men and women are suppressing the truth. Paul says that atheism is not a logical response. It's not an acceptable status. Now, Paul would perhaps say that agnosticism is understandable. Agnosticism says, well, I'm not sure that there is a God, there may be a God, and if there is a God, I'm not sure what that God is like. Because Paul is going to go on to talk about the fact that God makes him known, but there are two forms of God making himself known, two forms of revelation. One is called natural revelation, God making himself known in the created order, and then there's special revelation. You know, God can make himself known in the created order. You can look at the world, see that it's governed by laws, the laws of physics and so forth, you can look at the universe and recognize that there's order in the universe. But while that will tell you that there is a God, it won't tell you what that God is like. Because the same God who paints that magnificent sunset over the Ashley River is also the God who allows terrible tornadoes, storms, earthquakes that cause untold devastation. So while the created order can tell you that there is a God, that created order can't tell you what that God is like because you get a conflicting message from the created order. For that, you need a special kind of revelation. But Paul's point is that, at the very least, you can't say there is no God. Because the evidence of God is profound in the things that have been made. And what is interesting, 
the 20th century and the dawn of the 21st century has made that even truer in terms of being a statement. There is more evidence now for order in the universe than when Paul wrote these words in the first century. And so what does he say? He says, men are without excuse. Well, James is talking about something very similar. James is not talking about philosophical atheism. He's talking about practical atheism. He said what's even worse is when you profess that there is a God, but you live as though there's no God. That's even worse than being in doubt about it. That's saying that you know that there is a God, but you do not care. Now, many of us would say, well, I would never say that. He said, but how do you live your life? Do you take God into consideration in the plans that you make, in the way you conduct your business on a daily basis? That's what James is really concerned about here. And you can see how it's so practical on a day-to-day -day basis. Do you take God into consideration? When you get up in the morning, do you say, here's what I'm going to do today? Do you say to your spouse, here's what I'm going to do today? Do you say to your spouse, here's your list of what you're going to do today? Because <laughs> that's what I get generally. Here's your list for today. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to pick up the kids at such and such a time, and you're going to do this, that, and the other thing. And somebody, you either have an agenda or somebody has an agenda for you. How many of you do that? Or how many of you get up in the morning and say, Lord, what would you have me do today? Because that's what James is talking about here. It's a practical form of atheism. So we had that poem, Invictus. It matters not how straight the, great, the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You've got that on the one side, and you've got this, James says, on the other. Take my life and let it be. Consecrated Lord to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Which one is it for you? On a practical level, on a day to day basis, are you running your life? Are you making your plans? Are you doing your things? Or are you taking into consideration what God would have you do? Now, this is a great segue into what James is going to talk about next as he begins chapter 5. And I don't want to start that right now because it's worthy of a discussion in and of itself. But just look at chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. For your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in these last days, sounds very similar to what Jesus said in that parable of the rich fool, behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, you have kept back by fraud. And they are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fatted your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. 
James, in chapter 4, was talking about being God in your own life, making your own plans, doing your own things. And he said, nowhere is this more evident than in the way we spend our money. The way we spend our money. Isn't it interesting that the motto on the U.S. currency is, in God we trust. But actually, we trust more in the paper than we do in the Lord. And that's what James is talking about here in this chapter. So we're going to take a look at that next week. Now, I don't want to end on this harsh note. And that's one of the reasons why James, as I said, makes us very uncomfortable. Let's go and talk about theology. Let's go to Romans. Let's talk about justification and sanctification and the purpose of the law. Let's not talk about how we live our lives and make our agendas and make our plans and do our vacations and how we handle our money. Let's let's not talk about that kind of stuff. That's easy stuff, but it's the stuff that makes us uncomfortable. How many of you are uncomfortable right now? (laughs) Then I've done my job. I have to laugh. I was, um, after church last night, certain member of the congregation came up to me and he said to me, I want to thank you for your sermon. Well, I just preached last night. He said, I mean your sermon on Sunday. Now, if you were here on Sunday, I talked about wealth and money. And we talked about the rich young ruler and how Jesus spoke to him. And it's interesting to note how Jesus spoke to the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler said, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said, well, you know the commandments. And he said, I've kept them all. And Jesus said, there's only one thing more that you need to do. Go sell everything that you have. Give the money to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. And we're told that the young man's countenance fell and he walked away. And you know what's so powerful about that story? Is that Jesus didn't go after him. Did you ever notice that in the story? Jesus didn't go after him. Now, how would we handle that? If we were Jesus, imagine that you are God for just a moment. How would you handle it? Most of us would have said, all right, now, come on back here. Maybe I was a little hard on you. You don't have to give up everything. How about 10%? Let's just tithe. And, and, well, maybe that's even too hard for you. Hey, let's just work toward the tithe. But that's not what Jesus said to the man. Jesus said, there's another God in your life. And unless you give up that other God, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. It's as simple as that, period. And we're told that he turned and he walked away and Jesus looked at him and loved him. He loved him, but he let him go. Now that's a tough statement. And so I'm standing at the door of the church last night, and this gentleman comes up to me, a wonderful man, and he says to me, I want to thank you for your sermon on Sunday. It skewered me. And I said, well, it wasn't aimed at you. It was aimed at me. See, James doesn't give us this in order to make us despair. He gives us this kind of a message that we might be brought to the end of ourselves that we might recognize the flaw in our own life, in our own character, that we might recognize that living your life like this, 
leads to a dead end. It leads to despair. What he says there in chapter 5 is so true. He says, your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. When you die, how much are you going to leave behind? Everything. You're going to leave it all behind. There's an old Middle Eastern proverb. There are no pockets in a burial shroud. The way we put it is this. There's no trailer hitch on the hearse. And so what James wants us to do is he wants us to see ourselves, he wants us to see the flaws in our lives, not to despair, but to humble ourselves before the throne of the Almighty, to ask for his grace to amend our lives and to begin living differently. To begin to exercise a faith that really works. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of James. It is an eminently practical book, but it is challenging. It is difficult. It strips away everything that we would put up as a defense. And it lays bare what we really are inside, what's really going on in our hearts, in our minds. We pray, Father, though, that we might recognize that this is done for our well-being, like a surgeon who has to operate, and sometimes that involves doing violence to the body in order that it might be healed. This is what James wants to do to us. Like all Scripture, this is written for our learning. Grant that we may... In such wise, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it, that it may bring forth in us the fruit of good living, to the honor and glory of thy name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.